0: Everybody. Um, welcome to the 2022 series of Infection Control Matters. Um, I'm Martin Kiernan. It's been a few weeks now since we've done one of our episodes. And today we're going to be talking about air disinfection and the effect on the infection control. And I've got three colleagues to chat to about this. Uh, one, uh, two of them are actually involved, actively involved in the study at Addenbrookes. And that's uh, Matt Butler, Dr. Matt Butler, is a geriatrician uh and christine peters who works in scotland for nhs Glasgow. Uh and an old friend yvonne curran has joined us the discussion as well I'm Actually, that's probably a bit rude a, a friend i've known for some time let's say who uh, yvonne's a independent consultant so nice to see you all welcome
1: thank you, thank you. hello
0: Hi. uh matt can i kick off with you you're one of the leads in this study uh, what's a geriatrician doing getting interested in infection control
2: yeah, so that's a very good, um, very good question. So actually, my route into all this started back in the early days of the the first wave, when thankfully Cambridge was quite um, behind in the sort of the national pandemic curve, and so we had a bit more time, Adam Brooks, to get prepared. And I mainly got him in, involved in PP training and staff training because a, a lot of the stuff that we were going to be doing was new to many of the staff, and so um, I basically paired up with one of our infectious disease consultants locally. And that's when I sort of started to get to think about what actual routes are we preventing here? Because it was very clear to me at the start that it was all about sort of respiratory protective equipment. And then um, actually what we were training on was sort of more droplet precautions as as I then learnt what they were sort of mitigating against. So that was my first sort of introduction really into the world of infection prevention control. And then unfortunately as a geriatrician you've probably seen all the the sort of the big headline um, sort of figures on sort of mortality and that's mainly in the very elderly, the very vulnerable and um, unfortunately I've seen quite a number of outbreaks and a number of outbreaks that didn't seem to fit sort of the normal pattern of outbreaks. So Brooks very early on were able to do genomic analysis of all of our uh, patients and staff infected and what we showed was that actually quite a lot of transmission is going backwards and forth but also from patient to patient in a manner that didn't necessarily uh, align with them having direct contact. So it seemed to be spreading further down the corridor and into alternate bays and then obviously we Adam Brooks we then shifted to more using airborne precautions with regards to PPE but we're now only just starting to use sort of airborne mitigations in an environmental way and uh, what we wanted to do is to look at how best to do that how best to deploy airborne mitigations if you were to to look at it from an environmental perspective because bearing in mind although PP for the staff is going to stop some staff to patient transmission, that was only ever in a minority. In our our study, it was only ever around 10% of um, patient infections um, uh, came from infected staff members. And that's bound to be lower now, given that we're we're all vaccinated or the majority are vaccinated. Hmm. The majority of patient uh, transmission uh, or patient infections that are hospital-acquired, around 90% of them were shown to be occurring from other patients. And although we could ask patients to wear staff as a geriatrician i have a huge sort of proportion of my patients that have dementia or confusion when they're in hospital and wouldn't comply 24/7 with wearing face masks so then we're looking at other things that we can do so in addition to the testing and the screening and um, which has made a huge impact we're now looking beyond that and actually can we if we did have an infected patient that pops up on the ward can we then prevent that then spreading to patients within the bay or further down the corridor.
0: Could you describe the physical environment Matt as we're not talking I take it a brand shining new hospital here?
2: No so Adam Brooks uh, this site was built in the 1970s it's obviously changed a lot since then so uh, the vast majority of the wards are in a traditional sort of 10-story block not designed unfortunately for uh, to have massive sort of air changes so on average we're getting sort of around two to three on our hospital wards some a little bit lower in particular areas. And and then obviously some a lot higher like our haematology and oncology wards which have um, had um, their ventilation systems upgraded, but the general ward setup is probably quite standard for a hospital. So usually the wards are around twenty six patients per ward with around four six bedded bays and then four side room. And like most NHS trusts, we're hugely under provisioned when it comes to side room capacity. So when we have patients that pop up we're often having to cohort them in a bay and say if you were a contact ideally we would be isolating those patients for in case they became infectious but often we have to cohort multiple contacts mm. and then we're just testing frequently in order to try and identify those that then become infectious to, to remove them from that shared cohorted space but it's not it's not ideal when you're talking about such a an infectious agent that SARS-CoV-2 is. I
0: mean, and. and- The infectivity seems to have changed over the period, doesn't it, as well, with the different strains. I mean, just because you've got a brand-new hospital doesn't mean to say you've necessarily got great ventilation either, does it, Christine, if I could draw you in on that one?
3: (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, uh, our hospital here is almost 100% side rooms, single rooms, and there's still been outbreaks here. I mean, definitely it's been an advantage to have side rooms, there's no doubt about that. But uh, we also have just 2.5 ECHs per room, and, um, and also within our trust uh, board, we do have a, a vast number of sites with different ventilation parameters. But, yeah, uh, currently our hospital has, is the, the subject of rather a large number of reviews into its ventilation and uh, other parameters of design and building. But I think that what this pandemic has done is really focus um, a lot of people's minds on hospital estate which I think is going to be a good thing. I don't think it's Mm. a new thing. There's been, I mean, yourselves and others, um, notably Teresa Ingster and Elaine Clutman green and uh, Kath Noakes, Malcolm Thomases, Peter Hoffman. Lots of people have been really interested in ventilation and water and drains and these things. But only, I think now, Has it really come up the political agenda that it's worth investing? Um, Matt and I met really through Fresh Air NHS, a group of people who just sort of um, networked together, recognising that there wasn't really much being done about airborne transmission and that it seemed very clear to us that there was a discrepancy between what the the aerosol scientists and people who study transmission not just uh, people who do aeronautics engineer or something like that but people like don milton who's been working on transmissibility of viruses and other pathogens from person to person um, and in the context of airborne so there's a huge amount of literature there seemed to fit with what we were seeing and what we were seeing described in in different outbreaks and papers and we we Pulled together to try and get a, a petition to the, the the powers that be to to change guidance on FFP3 provision or equivalent for staff and also ventilation. And this study really is an opportunity to to do something um, to, practical because it, it's not an easy ask. If you know what. Hospital estate is like, and if you've ever mm. dealt with problems in theatres or isolation rooms, um, ventilation is a tricky thing to fix. It's expensive, it requires um, a lot of expertise. Um, and multiple competing um, pressures on a space. So, you know, so for the clinicians, it's always about having a bed space and being able to provide care immediately. Yeah. So, the immediate risks are always trumping the longer term risks. And as uh, people interested in infection control, we take a step back and look at the long term additive risks over time. And the HEPA idea was quite very attractive as being something that you could actually. OK, you need the money, you need to put, get something. And then you, it's sort of a plug and, and not quite go, as Matt will tell us, because it's evolved. But as a concept, it's something we could do right now with the, with the kind of um, technology we already have. And it's not entirely unknown. We've used portable filters in hospitals before, like mm-hmm. if you have an aspergillus outbreak, uh, you know, you yeah. get them. OK, they've got some downsides. You have to watch the maintenance. You have to be careful how you do it. But it's not unknown and it's not ridiculous. Theoretically, it really made a lot of sense. Um, and then uh, Matt sort of was the driving force between pulling us in and Clive um, Professor Biggs as well so yeah that's how I got involved.
0: Okay so Matt could you describe the study because there was some initial work done at Addenbrooks looking at removal of virus from the air but this study is much broader looking at a much broader group of infections isn't it which is uh, I think quite interesting.
2: Yeah so it is um it's separate to that study and just um to give you an, I mean, Adam Brooks is a huge site. Um, I didn't actually know that that study was um, was happening. Well, I I did in that um, when I took over the ward from being a COVID ward, um, uh, um, I I sort of saw them wheeling off these huge machines and I <laughs> wondered what they were, um, and then and then figured out what they'd been um, doing with all their air samplers. Um, but the study has has really been going since around about March, working with as um, as Christine said, um, Professor Beggs and a and a company called Air Purity, who were essentially a research operation just to the south of the city. Um, and what we initially set out to, to look at was, firstly, just where is the air going? Because a lot of what I was being told didn't seem to fit with the way the infections were happening. So from what I was told is that all these sort of multi-occupancy bays, these six um, patient bays, were positive pressured and then the, they would go into the air, would go into the corridor and the extract would would take the air out. Whereas actually what we saw when we um, did an aerosol experiment, very simply just letting off a nebulizer with particulate count, uh, PM counters um, uh, situated throughout the ward, we actually saw that the, it was going in the opposite direction. And I think that was basically because the air rate coming through the um, inlets was just so low that it wasn't able, as soon as, a pa- as soon as a person, either a patient or a staff member walked into that, they created this sort of vacuum behind them that was then drawing in the the aerosols behind them. So once we knew that actually we couldn't rely on the, the, the sort of the baseline measure, we then just set out to test a very simple setup with the, a, quite a powered, uh, high-powered scrubber um, in the corridor and actually just thought we'd um, have a look and see, well, what sort of a distance can this machine work at? Because the problem with doing HEPA and just putting in a, an underpowered machine in a corridor, say, um, where you're going to have equipment surrounding it is that you probably will then end up just with the HEPA filter creating a bubble of clean air around it. And what we were more interested in is can we change the environment wholesale? So we designed, um, Air Purity designed these units to basically create um, a flow of current around the ward, which would then bring air to the unit uh, as well as cleaning the air that came to the unit And we actually saw that within uh, beyond 15 metres, we were having a cleaning effect. In fact, one of the nurses accidentally turned, well, not accidentally, she intended to turn off the filter um, to charge her uh, mobile phone, uh, which is one of the uh, competing demands in the NHS for electrical sockets. And we saw this really good natural experiment of Um, A very low baseline PM level when you've got the filters um, on and then the filters go off. and You have this huge spike in in PM counts. But what we also saw interesting, we're going to publish on this, um, is that when the filters are on, we're actually having an additive effect with bringing down the CO2. Now, that might just be because the the machines are mixing the air a bit more. um, But there is this possibility that actually we're improving natural ventilation by creating this air current that's going around the ward. So that then led on to us actually seeking funding from the Department of Health, uh, which we achieved um, a couple of weeks ago, and then ethics approval last week, where we're going to put in a very souped up HEPA intervention onto two wards, Adam. two elderly care wards. And I'll come on to why we've chosen elderly care in a bit. But essentially, the intervention is um, smaller sized HEPA units achieving around about 1,300 metres cubed per hour um, in each of those six bedded bays and then two larger scale units in the corridor. Um, so that's, uh, it's not two units per ward, it's um, six units per ward and they're fairly sizable units. Mm-hmm. What we're aiming to achieve is an air change rate of uh, between about 8 to 10. We might be able to get it up to 13, although noise might mean that we have to just dial it down a little bit because obviously we, what, we, what we can't be in interfering with is is sort of sleep because obviously our patients need to have time to rest and recover. But the reason we've chosen geriatric wards is because what we're really key on is mitigating the longer range risk when ventilation won't necessarily impact on that close range transmission um, unless you're generating such air currents akin to sort of a wind tunnel. Um, And the beauty of studying geriatric wards is that the patients are relatively sedentary and immobile. So often they will be moving, but usually with the assistance of others. And rarely will they ever um, sort of cohabit a space. Rarely will they go up to someone and sit on someone else's bed and be in close quarters. So any transmission that we see is more likely to be due to the um, uh, the, the sort of the longer range, the farer range um, transmission. And we're not just looking at patient outcomes, although that for me as a clinician is, is the key. Do we actually reduce infections? Mm-hmm. Um, and not just for SARS-CoV-2, but all the other respiratory viruses, potentially norovirus and C. diff, which we postulate have a aerial dissemination route to their spread within hospitals. For this, and the same reason why we use ionizers when we're cleaning bases after an outbreak to clean all the non-contact surfaces. But the other, um, we are going to be repeating the experiments of Andy Conway-Morris, one of my anaesthetist colleagues, who's also on our study team, of actually looking at, well, what are the pathogens that are in the air? And we're using a a microfluidic PCR machine to look at that. And we can look at 96 organisms in 96 samples for for fairly cheap cost, And we've already demonstrated that we can pull those um, out of the air. So hopefully this study will be a link between patient infections, but also what we're seeing in the air. And also, is there a seasonal component, but tying it into indoor air quality. So we postulate that there's actually a big factor that we can't necessarily modify, we might not necessarily be able to modify, which is humidity. And how does humidity within a hospital environment, being particularly dry in the winter when potentially particles can evaporate quicker, become smaller and remain more suspended, how does that affect what we're seeing in the air and also potentially the knock-on effect to um, uh, patient infections?
0: Interesting. I mean, I know... If you went back a few years now, I think it's something around 2006, Tim Boswell was interested in in air and HEPA filters and did a small study at Nottingham and showed that they got reduced environmental contamination in rooms with patients with MRSA just through air filtration. So are you thinking about doing any surface sampling at all to look for, you know, are you getting reduced surface contamination? Because that might be interesting.
2: Yeah, certainly, because I think that's where the bulk of the literature is as well. So we would be very interested in knowing... Um, actually like you say if, if we do reduce surface contamination um, then then that actually adds that, that element of um, how much is air really disseminated how much is touch and um, so how much is staff members becoming contaminated themselves and then putting it on the surface but how much is as you say just simply um, through particles that are landing on that surface and mm. um, so yeah we are going to be doing surface sampling um, in addition to the um, in addition to the air sampling how we're going to to do that is going to be, we we we're still yet to figure out because we have to obviously sample the same space and we want to be able to sample something not too close to the um, air sampling units because they actually do clean the air themselves and so we're mm. we're going to have to sort of iron out a few things about those things w- whether we actually do more traditional microbiological sort of Anderson style samplers or settle plate we haven't um, we haven't finalized as yet what we're wanting to do is to see how the um, the bioaerosol sampler works in a different hospital setting to what they've what they've tested before, and then move from there.
0: Christine, have you got any thoughts on environmental sampling? If, would that be worthwhile in this study?
3: Yeah, that's what we've been. Uh, that was my kind of interest as well around not expanding it out beyond COVID-19 because of course in between the waves we began to wonder if we were going to be able to have an impact a clinical impact on COVID-19 and obviously that's there have been waves since then and we might very well see more waves and more variants so it's just an amazing opportunity to actually monitor the environmental conditions and the organisms in the environment and tie it into clinical outcomes, because I think Mm -hmm. that's missing from a lot of these studies previously. So it's a long term, it's a year, it's a number of wards, and as Matt's just described, the advantages of doing it in this kind of setting, but also in Addenbrooke, they have an amazing system of recording all the clinical parameters and diagnoses and chest x-rays and bloods, and that can all be Utilised. So we started off. I mean, it grew arms and legs. The problem with this project is actually keeping it to a manageable, a manageable size. So there's lots of bolt-on things we can do, and I've been thinking that through. Um, I want to do the the, the normal sampling as well as the fancy stuff, so that we, because we're used to interpreting that kind of data, aren't we, with the kind of studies we already do.
0: Mm. I was
3: interested in MRSA, C diff spores, um, and The sort of dry. Type organisms yeah. that you you think of as being in dust or in the air. But then there's also, you know, um it's becoming, there's more information now, isn't there, around things like Pseudomonas and gram negatives being in the air with splashing water and um, drains, toilet plumes. And actually, there's a huge untapped uh, amount of description to be done around that and what happens. And so we're actually looking at um, hospital acquired pneumonias as well as UTIs. Um, and and basically anything infective will pick it up but then you've got a year and you know hopefully for patient's sake that there isn't an MRSA problem but see if you haven't in if you haven't got MRSA in the environment or it hasn't been brought in in someone you're not going to have it in the skin squamed, you're not going to have it so not finding it isn't going to really help you so you've no. got to tie in with what you we're going to have to tie in with the actual normal microbiology so if you did get a case of C. diff that's the time that you actually probably want to sample so Mm. it's it's not a classic study in the sense that you can necessarily set it up um pre an event you've got to respond to things that happen and make use Mm. of the opportunity you've got with the the so the, the ninety six well technology that they have uh, used in the in that um, study that we've mentioned in Adam is just phenomenal and you can choose which organisms you want. So VRE is another one actually. That would be really interesting to know. That would have been an interesting about one, wouldn't it? Yeah. The um there's and, another Tim Boswell yeah. paper
0: where they looked at the socks coming off people's feet and found eighty oh, plus yeah. percent of them had VRE on it without any the known case. Yeah, it it's, was. Not yeah. it's not
3: cloud. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, that that whole air thing is is we, we haven't been able to visualise it very well previously. So now you've got all those computer technologies, amazing um, studies of movements of air, and now it's about the pathogens in the air, and trying to to tease mm. out do they behave slightly differently. Um, the humidity is going to be interesting because there might be a sweet spot for humidity that's different for different pathogens. And of course, a lot of what we've done, a lot of the data we have in the literature around airborne pathogens is fungal and it's fungal spores. And that's what we traditionally do our air sampling with, you know, and our bone marrow transplants here. We've got a lot of data on that, but that might be a different humidity might work for keeping, you know, what you want. Um, fungal spores at bay in this patient cohort we probably don't see infections like that but we could extrapolate it to other other settings as well so yeah I think there's a lot we could do and it's almost like trying to keep it in manageable bites and responding to what happens so that's the beauty of having somebody like Matt there on the ground seeing the patient seeing what's happening and also with the um the company who've made the machines, um, Darren, who's uh, phenomenal in kind of problem-solving and thinking through the research and, you know, even things like at what height, um, if the fan's at different, filters at different heights, would that affect how these particles are stratified or moving through the through the space?
0: Mm, I mean, it's but, great yeah. to see people from other spheres working in the infection prevention space as well because everyone's yeah. much more engaged. But, I mean, Yvonne and I come from a more traditional... <laughs> In other words, we've been around in this a long time, and it's taken a long time for us to accept air, hasn't it, or recognise air and recognise the contribution of other specialties. Especially, and it's been really been to me, it's been really highlighted during COVID. You know, we, you know, we used to think, oh, maybe group A strep's airborne TB, yes, from a bacterial point of view, not thinking so much about other organisms, you know, viruses, droplet, and but air scientists knew so much more than us. Why? Why do you think we've not been listening to them, Yvonne?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I I think we believed in something that was too good to be true. We were presented with guidance which said we could identify whether or not spread from a respiratory tract was by the airborne route or by droplet. And that's the biggest thing we've ever got wrong, I would now say that there could be a magic size that, we, that would divide whether or not we needed a face shield from, from a respirator, was nonsense. And the problem at the minute, I think, is everybody is still seeing droplets. And the reason they're still seeing droplets in papers is because the papers were written by researchers and scientists who are looking through the prism of droplets. If it's near, it's droplets. If it's far away, it's airborne. That doesn't make sense. But if you're somebody who's looking at the literature, where people and as you know, some of the biggest organisations have said we're seeing droplets, it's only droplet transmission. That cannot be true. It defies the laws of physics, and it is this prism. If I put on a pair of glasses that only looked at near trans- transmission happening in a small space, must be droplet. I would see droplets everywhere, but that's not mm-hmm. the truth. So you have to take those glasses off. And you have to get the aerobiologists in the room. And the only problem with those is they come under lots of different names, but they're all expert in it. But you need someone in the room to say, no, this is actually what happens. We were were working on the wrong paradigm and that we haven't spotted it yet. And the way that some people have begrudgingly accepted it, I'm talking notable bodies here, is not good. For us as a science, because when it's all over, there will be a, how come it took you so long?
0: The the bit I struggle with is often I find in infection control you have to be a bit of expert in other people's practice even though you're not actually doing it and you're giving them advice on what the literature says and sometimes and a lot of the time our literature isn't that strong when we're talking about dealing with that urinary catheter etc and yet we're recommending practices to people and if you look at many of our guidelines they're not based on gold standard RCTs they're based on sometimes expert opinion and yet when it comes to looking at our own practice, we're actually not prepared to take the opinion of experts who do know what they're talking mm. about. And that's what i am struggled a bit with now, to be honest.
1: There is a high reliability characteristic. So high reliability has got five characteristics that you should be looking at, or you should be behaving likewise, to be safe, to be mindful. And one of them is deference to expertise, to experts and expertise. And that's about saying, have we got the right people in the room? And I remember going right back at the beginning, I really wanted a city and guilds in plumbing because it was Legionella that we were dealing with and I was literally Mm. out of my depth. And here it's aerobiology and you couldn't become an expert by being a scientist and looking at a literature without having years of experience in these experiments and this science. You can't do it by just reading it. You have to defer the experts and the experts in this pandemic have not necessarily been infection control they have been aerobiologists and and various others that have stood up and been pelted at for saying COVID is airborne it's actually very nice to hear being in a room of feeling safe say COVID is airborne but um, there we are.
3: I wonder if there's also you know a lot of what we do it's a it's um tick box exercise and in a sense that's okay because if you want to put in place behaviors that you want everybody to do rapidly we know that checklists work don't we yeah. there's yeah. a really good evidence base around that so a lot of infection control or the development of infection control over the last 20 years has been putting in place um you know, three or four things you do every single time you put a venflon in or a central line, all of that is surrounded by behaviors that each of which are evidence-based. And and that way of thinking, I think, has driven, this is me, just my personal view, is a way of um, thinking that might not be the best answer, but as long as you can replicate it and everybody does the same thing, you're going to be okay.
0: Hmm.
3: Instead of really thinking outside the box and say, what actually is the problem just now? And also being able to say it's not working. So even if at the in the first wave, you know, we didn't know for sure, there was there was an absence of data. I mean, some people were on board earlier than others. Um, I'd say personally in the first wave, I was probably there's airborne, but I was still pushing the droplet thing as Matt was. You know, we, we, there's no way you're going to say too. don't clean, don't wash your hands. We were there's all a there. out
0: there me, me too. I've got, <laughs> yeah. I've got a YouTube we video saying it's droplet. Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> we're all there.
0: I, cr- I cringe but then, now. At
3: what point? We all do. <laughs> Matt's got seventy thousand people watched to see that. Oh, don't well, I've got one hundred and
0: thirty. <laughs> I've
2: got <laughs> 30, made me look an idiot
0: myself.
1: It, there is a great book, and it's called "Seeing What Others Don't." Mm-hmm. And there's three things that you look at now. I will get you this uh, uh, link for you, for the bit at the end, Martin. I know that one of them is contradictions when you see contradictions that don't make sense, and the other one is when you're in desperate measures. Uh, which is probably what drove Matt. No, this doesn't make sense, was was the contradiction. And we're desperate for something to make sense. And I can't remember for the life of me what the other one was, but I will get it. I I will get you the list. And it's a really good book. Okay, 90% of the time, the checklists are going to help us out. But we need to be mindful when no hang on something that doesn't make sense here but stop step back and and take a look and that's a really good book for that and and the other one is um think again by a guy called grant and that's all about how you make decisions and what you base your decisions on and i thoroughly recommend their book because we're all going to have to do some reflection at the end of this and these are the sorts of ways of thinking that we have to build in alongside the checklists if we're going to be safe going forward
0: I mean, Matt, what's it been like from not working in the infection control sphere looking at us plow our way through this, do you think?
2: Um, uh, well i think it's it's been a lot easier for me to come from a blank slate um mm. because i i mean i knew all about um uh, so we, we obviously have our infection prevention control uh tutorials we all sort of know about hand hygiene we know about the seven steps we know about sort of um, contact respiratory um and, and and sort of other measures that we put in place i knew a bit about how we sort of approached outbreaks because we get a lot of C. diff, um, thankfully not a lot recently, but but particularly how spaces were cleaned afterwards. But this is really, I think, like uh, Yvonne has just said, it's really sort of been for me, okay, this doesn't seem to be working. My patients, even though we're, uh, like, we've never done contact and droplet precautions, like, as well as what you were ever going to see in the NHS. I mean, we were so frightened of touching things that we were not even wearing stethoscopes around our neck anymore. We, were, we had demarcated squares on, on tables that we would put a stethoscope after we'd clenelled it. And if it was in that square, it had been clenelled and the square had been clenelled before we put the stethoscope down. So we are never, ever going to do contact and surface precautions as well as what we did do. But what we what it taught me was that actually it's not working. And I told Hugh Pym on the BBC News at 10 that, oh, no, no, this is all fine. So um, so uh, I might trump you a hundred and something thousand that you said it was droplet, but, um, but it was... Um, it was for me the fact that every single thing that we were doing was helping a little bit so testing really helped the ability to not have to wait three days for a test to come back and to find that patient when they're at peak infectivity when they've just popped up on the ward that was that was one of the key things then vaccination massively helped for us for staff infections ffp3 helped but we haven't really made an impact on patient infection so we're just looking at um at tom norton's latest figure um for um one in five hospital hospitalized patients at the moment in my region have hospital acquired covid one in five and we're Mm. two
0: years into a pandemic i know yeah that's the bad thing
2: um, and the vast majority of infections so i think from my perspective um it's been quite easy to adapt because i haven't had that those those sort of necessarily those those deeply embedded preconceptions or the the mantra and also in geriatrics we don't have guidelines there's a lot of there's a lot of we're having to sort of make the best out of a situation which is not ideal. So we've got multiple competing uh, medical problems, but we're having to optimize the one that we think is the most pertinent to that p- point. Um, and so I think we're always we're always going into things with, well, I'll try that, and if it doesn't work, then I'll try something else. And that's hence why we why we set up the study because we're trying it. We might as well know whether it worked.
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We don't know. When did we say that this isn't working? Um, and and I, I'm not currently an ICD. So I, I think it's it's also a bit easier to sit outside. And that's this part of the danger And in this whole discussion is actually it was very rapid increase in cases. People were caught out, you know. Uh, we've got high expectations, but did we have the resources there? So, you know, places that didn't have side rooms, how, how are you going to segregate people? Um, and you are going to end up with with wards. Um, so I think the first wave was really when we should have been able to sit down and pick it apart quickly before the next law. And I, I didn't see, I don't know, maybe other people have seen really good learning from the first wave, but I haven't seen a lot of publications around what could be done differently and what we if there is a route that we are not mitigating why wouldn't we at least attempt it I mean I was convinced by the science previously but then I have been interested in in TB and um, ventilation around isolation rooms and PPVL rooms and all of that so I already had a handle on some of those papers and I already Mm -hmm. read indoor air for example for a few years but then even at that point you're I think we should have had the openness of mind to say do you know what we maybe don't have all the answers but this hasn't worked what we've been doing and we need to do more and it seems quite sensible if there's a route that at least has reasonable um, evidence behind it and it's not a huge thing to try and mitigate it in terms of PPE. Anyway, it's not yeah. a big ask actually to provide PPE for every healthcare worker. It, it isn't in the in the grand scheme. Can you consider the huge amounts of effort that have gone in to the vaccine development and the and the diagnostics? Incredible labs being built, whole infrastructures, whole IT setup, it, just incredible resource. And yet we've we've fallen down on the idea that a bit of plastic, you know material of whatever kind fit tested to your face is a step too far and i, I don't know how how i reconcile that with um, with our specialty um going forward but we need to change
0: it's going to take some, some yeah. sort of honest right okay yeah. that's what we knew and we have to unlearn what we knew because that's what we thought at the time. And that's what evidence possibly suggested. But the weight of evidence, now we have to relearn something new. And that's very difficult for some, I think.
3: And people have worked hard. I think we have to acknowledge that. People worked very, very yeah. hard. And it was very hard for infection control teams, as it was for clinical teams. This isn't, it's not something that you lightly say, oh, you know, that's useless or a failure. That's not what this is. It's about learning and re- learning rapidly in time for the next. So from this step on, I remember Yvonne actually once did a um, debrief from an, a flu outbreak I'd managed um, in, in Australia, Scotland. One of the things she said was, did you have any cases after you recognized there was a problem? And actually we hadn't, and that meant it was a success, (laughs) but actually we'd done lots of things that we should have done better. Mm -hmm. But I've always remembered that, Yvonne, actually, is like, so, you know, how many cases did you have after you knew there was a problem? Because before you know there's a problem, there's, you know, you've just discovered it. And then you put them in, and there's always learning. There's always something you could have done better. And the the trick is to capture it and then to share it and then get people on board with it. And I think that's the step we're at at the moment. Um, but we need we need that buy in and step up. I think there's also this thing about the hierarchy.
1: Um, we talk about the hierarchy of controls, but this is a, a hierarchy in terms of what controls, and uh, you know, where the feedback was coming back up the way uh, um, that didn't enable people to change minds. There's there's a lot of this how we didn't change our mind because. The one thing um, that stuck in my craw, as I say up here, was you know reading that the paradigm that had been used and spouted defied physics, you know, and I thought, oh for goodness sake, you know, how stupid could we be that the paradigm that we put down defied physics? And one of the problems was, although there had been SARS and although SARS one and MERS and somebody described it the pandemic cold earlier on, most of the time that paradigm, wrong as it was served us. We didn't have big outbreaks of MERS or SARS or, or, or any, any of these things. So it didn't slap us in the face the way it would have done. I mean, I remember reviewing a paper that, that got published and they were talking about what they did. And obviously it wasn't on these shores, it was on far away. They had a, a wee folder up there. They'd put in everything they'd learned from SARS and they took it down, blew it off and just kept adding to it all of the time in terms of their new learning. And, um, and we've we've just ploughed a furrow. No, nope, it's droplets. It's droplets, and we're looking through this prism of droplets. And yep, it's droplets. It's not droplets. Droplet only respiratory transmission doesn't have an evidence base, you know. Mm. And so we, we we should stop now. We should stop today, wind back the clock, and go forward because we're still sending healthcare workers to work to care for people who are looking after people with COVID, and with the wrong precautions.
0: Well, as you say, for the next time, because there was, what, 10 years between the first coronavirus outbreaks, and eight between the second and the third. So we're probably only about five years off the next, if that number keeps going Well, come going and
1: down. wait till we sort
0: yeah. this one. It would be a nice thought, wouldn't
1: it? If ever we do,
2: yeah. I think it would It would just be important just to say just that a lot of IPC teams up and down the country have already changed. So I've got a, a list that I collate myself, one in six Uh, NHS trusts uh, within the UK have already accepted this. It's just, it's very tricky to do when sort of, uh, as Yvonne's highlighted that um, with the hierarchy that exists, that actually it's not had buy-in centrally. So a lot of, and I know certainly when Adam Brooks did that, Move. It was very brave of them to do it, but um they felt very strongly that they should announce it as well. So our chief executive went to NHS England and and went onto YouTube and said, We've found that it has an impact on staff infections. Mm-hmm. It's our duty now to tell that. Unfortunately, it didn't lead to any change because We've we've just got in. We've gone down this blind alley of droplet blind alley, and I think politically, it's just really difficult now to row back on that.
0: It almost needs an excuse, doesn't it? Like the end of the pandemic, and it would be interesting to see what new guidelines would come out for, uh, you know, in the preparation for a subsequent pandemic. Anyway. I can't wait to see the results of this study because I'm very interested in the impact on other organisms and other infections as well. Because I, I think there's a lot of potential there. I think it's been there for a while, but we haven't had the excuse really to go looking this hard for that sort of thing. So uh, thanks very much to Matt and Christine and Yvonne for joining me today. Uh, fascinating discussion. Hopefully, there'll be a little bit of debate about this as well. And as I'm sure there will be going forward. And uh, Let's hope, Matt, when this is finished, you don't go back to just being a geriatrician. You still keep being an advocate for infection prevention and control because we really need people in other specialties to actually take an interest in our subject. So thanks very much, everybody.
1: Thank you. Uh, Thank
0: you. Thank you very much, Martin.